The tide is coming in. It washes over the sand, and then the road, and then the front lawn. The water pools around cars parked in the driveway. This is home. I keep a flood journal. I don't record it until it really goes past Frank's, that telephone pole. I don't even bother. It happens so much. To me, that's not an event at all. Marty's house constantly can't get out. Morris Sperry sits on her front porch. It's 10 feet above the road in front of her house. That way she can avoid the constant flooding that happens on her street. Off to the left where her street ends is a wide stretch of blue, the Great South Bay. But if it keeps going the way it's going, it seems like, I would say in, it looks like 30 to 50 years, I doubt these houses will be viable. I really do. This is Long Island. In the 1950s, the American dream was made iconic here in these suburbs, with white picket fences, manicured lawns, and a ranch for a family of four. Long Island set the pace for white suburban America. But many of these idyllic downtowns, vibrant with stores, restaurants, and businesses, are built near the shore. This has been 70 years of absolute idiocy. I don't understand it. I look at it and I go, who thinks this is a good idea? This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm J.D. Allen. Now in the 21st century, rising tides and climate change threaten America's first suburbs. And those neighborhoods are responding. On Long Island, climate change is already here. Communities must prepare and people must find ways to adapt. These solutions might give us the best chance at survival and help save the places millions of people call home. Or we may discover that retreating from the sea is the only way forward. My team and I are going to take you on a field trip each episode to explore how strong Long Island is and could be in its search for ways to adapt to climate change. We'll talk not just about sea level rise, but about power, pollution, inequality, and our relationship to the nature around us. Our bags are packed with support by. WSHU, the station you know, trust, and count on, is more relevant than ever. I'm WSHU and American Homefront Project reporter Desiree DiOrio. Your support has enabled us to deliver what you need at a moment's notice, wherever you happen to be. We can tell stories that really matter, connecting facts and revealing the truths you need. Thank you for listening and supporting WSHU Public Radio. We're stronger together. Let me first introduce you to a character who we can't meet in person, but who will loom large over everything we see and everyone we meet over the next eight episodes. Millions of Americans are still living through the aftermath. Rounding the East Coast with high winds, rain, and overwhelming by storms. Mile an hour wind it's one of the worst residential fires in New York history. More than Superstorm Sandy hit Long Island in 2012, one short decade ago. And for many here, it was a turning point. It finally forced Long Islanders like me to face how vulnerable our lives are to so-called once-in-a-century storms. 
As we tour the island, we'll see its effects again and again. That means for many people, it's been nearly a week without power. And brought more than four feet of water flooding into some And of the more than 400,000 customers in New York State still without power, half live on Long Island. But new data also shows this extreme weather and the disruption storms cause will continue to be more frequent. A 2021 United Nations scientific report found that climate change and extreme weather will intensify over the next 30 years. In other words, it's not going to take another century for the next Superstorm Sandy to show up. The UN calls this a code red for humanity. Morris Sperry, well, we heard her. She calls the lack of response idiocy. It really is all about the money because it's all about the developers going like, well, that's going to cost a butt ton of money. And it's been our elected officials over the years kind of just pushing it off going like, well, nobody wants to raise taxes to pay for that. Later in our series, we'll hear more about how Mora's coastal community will need to work fast to either harden their defenses against future storms or bow to the floods and retreat from their homes. But today, we're headed elsewhere to learn more about Long Islanders' centuries-long relationship with the ocean and what it means to be a coastal people. To the marshlands off of Hempstead and Islip on the south shore of Long Island, at one time home to a hundred bay houses. Nancy Solomon is our guide. She's ready for a day out on the water with a big hat, sunscreen, and a sense of adventure. Well, we are in what's called the East Bay of the town of Hampstead and hundreds of years ago the marshlands were much larger around here and so the baymen used to build the bay houses here so that they could go clamming and oystering and and duck hunting. Nancy is a public folklorist and today she'll take us back to the late 19th century. Over the years the marshlands have eroded so now many of the bay houses that you see they used to have easily several hundred feet of land in front of them. Now they are on the shoreline. That's what climate change and marshland erosion, you know, looks like. We're on a small boat that zips through the water and around these marshlands. On them are these cottages built on platforms raised by pilings above the marshland. Homes on stilts, essentially hovering precariously above the water. The house on the on the far left is the Smith Bay House. It's owned by Laura Smith. Her father built their family's original bay house back in the in the fifties. And we think there was another Smith Bay House before that one. It has a small room, maybe two, with a wood burning stove. The only electricity would come from a generator. The outside is shingled with an enclosed porch and a dock that runs into the bay. Historically, people would only live here to work during the fishing season. A boat is the only way to get here. Well, I guess you could swim. And so she has recreated to the exact inch and the design what existed there before. Recreated because it was rebuilt after Superstorm Sandy barreled through the bay in 2012. Nancy says it's not the first storm to wipe out the Smith house and dozens of her neighbors. She helped save the bay houses from total ob obliteration in the early 1990s when I was documenting the bay houses. She became one of the lead people to work with the town of Hampstead and the bay house owners 
to negotiate an agreement so that they could, you know, repair their houses and, and transfer their leases when the time came. In the 90s, the state of New York wasn't too sure what to do with these bay houses. Every few years, bad weather would come through, rip them up from their supports, and end up washed against a bridge or in someone's backyard on the mainland. The state considered taking them all down. Nancy came down from Westchester, north of New York City in those days, with the mission of preserving the slice of life for Bayman and their family traditions. The state made a deal. Protect the Bay homes for their historical significance, but the town would control the properties and prohibit the cottages from being sold. They can only be passed down through family or close friends who have been caretakers of the property. The traditions of this place, Nancy says, are the stories that interest her most. And stories? Boy, she has them all. Next to the Smith house is the Grodsky house. And this house was built in the 1950s. It may have been based on an earlier bay house that needed a lookout tower for the rum runners. We don't know for sure. But we have heard stories about how some bay houses had lookout towers. And the, this is the third generation of Grotskys to have a bay house. It was totally destroyed by Sandy, and they have rebuilt it so that you would not be able to tell it's a brand new bay house, other than it's good condition. It's such a distinct look. It has this, um, as you said, this watchtower up top. There's even a door on top so that way you can walk out onto the roof, um, which is flat, which is unlike the other cottage-like homes that have a slanted roof. Now you will notice on top of the flat roof there are strings that are go around it as well as crisscross it. That is to keep the seagulls from dumping their clams on the roof, which is how they break them open in order to eat. Because if the seagull then follows the clam, he's going to get his feet stuck. So that's a preventive measure. It's one of the unglorious tasks that all bay house owners have had to learn, how to make sure the seagulls don't use your, your roof as their cutting board. Just, I'm just putting only because the tide's coming up. I want to make sure I have enough tide. I'll, you know, scoot in there. Dan Polera captains the boat that we're using to tour the bay. Would anybody like a uh, bottle of water? I have cold water on the boat. I have mine here. You sure? Everybody good? Also here is Ellie Dassler. Captain Dan grabs her a bottle of water. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyone else? Everybody's good? It's always nice. Ellie interns for Nancy at Long Island Traditions, a group that documents and preserves the way of life developed by this region and passed on from generation to generation. They explore ethnic, occupational, and architectural heritage here, including these cottages on the bay and the people who call them home. I'm just going to show you this other little, uh, wait till these waves go by with the boat. There's another little spot where the water goes in. Dan is a retired bayman who admits he's lucky to dock his boat outside his home on a canal nearby. He's also a self-taught landscape painter. The bay houses and marshland are his muse. Beauty. This is just absolutely gorgeous. Look at the way this little bit of water catches the blue sky reflection, goes in and mixes with the green. You know, when the sun sets in this spot, 
you had this marsh lit up with a golden color from the sun reflecting. And if you're up high enough on the other side, you could see the water sparkling, that waterway that we came through the bridge, loop bridge out to the ocean. It's just such a variety of beautiful contrasts along the way. It's paradise in my eyes. <laughs> This affinity for the Bay, that's why Dan and others lucky enough to be able to afford to live here pay big bucks for homes and property taxes. A neighbor down the street pays over $17,000 a year just in taxes, and Dan is closer to the water. It's why the descendants of Bayman bothered to rebuild their bay houses out on the marshland storm after storm even if it's just for the weekend to get away with the kids. Uh, I have had a love for the water all my life, and I just gravitated. When I saw them, you know, they just have such a, um, I guess you would say, rustic feel. You know, they look like they're, they're set back in time, you know, and to me that has character. But it's ultimately why you decided to live here. I mean, this, this life near the water is, is just home to you. Yeah, yeah, this is, you know what happens? It's in your veins. The salt runs through your veins. Once you're addicted uh, to the salt life, you really, you can't get away from it. You could never take me away from this environment, you know, put me upstate or in interior of the country. I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it, you know? Ellie, who's decades younger than Dan, says she also feels a connection here. Even though this is her first time on the bay, in fact, she just moved to Long Island. I grew up in a in a part of the world with a lot of maritime culture. I grew up in in Hampton Roads in Virginia, and grew up you know going to the Rappahannock River, the James River, Chesapeake Bay. Um, so it's really nice to get to know kind of another part of the country that has such a strong relationship with water, and it just like I can just breathe easier being close to the water because it's just what I grew up with. Ellie has started to work with Nancy on a few projects. Today's field trip is to survey repairs to bay houses after last year's storms. We're going to take it up a little bit guys so um, just hang on. It's not going to be crazy. We're going to take a nice ride. Nancy, Ellie and Dan hold on to their hats as we pick up speed. Dan maneuvers us around small sand dunes that are terraformed by each changing tide and current. Just because he's been on these waters all of his life doesn't mean it's all smooth sailing. You know, if you go on one of the bay houses and get inside and look out the windows, man, you have a 360 degree panoramic view of open salt marsh, which is just, just breathtaking. Breathtaking, really is, at any time of the year. It's pretty much as, I guess, Long Island as you can get, right? Um, yeah, well, you know, Long Island has a little bit of different flavors. You know, you have the North Fork. Long Island is like a two-pronged barbecue fork jutting east from New York City, hence the North Fork and the South Fork. I prefer to think of it like the tail of a fish. Anyway, off the North Shore is the Long Island Sound, a partially enclosed coastal body of brackish water that connects the Atlantic Ocean. It takes an hour by boat to get across the Sound to Connecticut. And it has a whole different look and feel to it. But the South Shore, basically from here all the way to Montauk, um, has quite a bit of salt marsh. Sheltered by barrier islands, they're pretty much city-sized sand dunes that protect the coast. People live and work there, too. In a later episode, we'll visit those barrier islands and find out how they're responding to the threat of rising tides. 
And then we'll visit indigenous tribes whose ancestors are the original stewards of the coastline. And it's Ellie Dassler, the intern from Virginia, who reminds us that living by the water is a tradition that transcends 21st century Long Islanders. Indigenous people have a knowledge about using natural resources and also um, a recognition that they know how to care for that land in a way that they don't feel it's being cared for by other people in the area. And it hits me as we round the bend that all of our field trips are to lands once entirely home to indigenous people. Back home, you know, there are these maritime communities and they're getting smaller and smaller. And here on Long Island, you know, there's so many more people here in such a smaller space. Um, and just the, the diversity of ways that people interact with the water um, in their everyday lives has really been really cool to see. Check that out over there. This is the Muller Bay House. Now, the Muller Bay House was originally on a different part of this marshland. During Sandy, it lifted off of its foundation and it landed just underneath one of the parkway bridges. One of the other Bay House owners happens to run a barge company, and he said, I can't guarantee, but I think we can lift this and bring it back. The engineering of bay houses never ceases to amaze me. It's always about who you know that can help you. The barge had these big straps that they wrapped, or literally wrapped around the house. It was attached to this crane and the crane lifted it up. Then they put it on the barge, brought it over here. Sandy taught less experienced bay homeowners a lesson or two like this one. As we said, the historic bay houses are only passed down within families. But other people have built in this area and near to this water. And to those homes, built to be lived in rather than just visited, are often engineered differently. So the house on the right, which is the greenhouse, is a brand new bay house. To its credit, it conforms to the design of other bay houses. It is much larger than the other bay houses that you see here. They say when you build up too high, you're building up into the wind zone. And that can hurt your house tremendously, as Superstorm Sandy showed us. And there's uh, deck chairs and uh, uh, water floaties and barbecues. It's a bit more residential than it is, say, recreational. We are constantly reminding people that the next storm could take all of this away. You know, they know that it, this could all disappear. And as we stand in front of this deserted dock, there is no house at the end of this dock, that reminds you how fragile this ecosystem really is. We wrap up the boat tour when we reach Dan's house. Before Nancy and I head down the docks to the village of Freeport, we turn back to take a look at a few bay homes we can still see from the shore. I want us to take just a, a walk down this small dock here, just to the, the bay home that we have over here, because it's very different from the ones that we see out there. Well, this is the Bear Bay House, and this was built in around 1950, 1952. And this is one of the few bay houses that still is on its original mud sill foundation. And 
because it is sent back with a quite large expanse of land, also surrounded by trees, that helped protect it. There's also, if you notice, it is facing east. And we found that there were more bay houses that survived if they faced east rather than west. Why is that? When Sandy hit, it was coming from the south and heading east. And if you're facing east, that meant the, the, the storm surge and the wind was behind you. Whereas if your house was facing west, the storm was going right into the front of your house. And with the wind that's coming off of the water right now, and as we're walking towards it, we kind of feel that against our faces. So imagine that, but 70, 90 miles per hour, and you're a 100-year-old building. And you're at high tide, and, it's, and the storm surge is about 14 feet. That house, the bear house, was practically underwater. We think that, again, the, that mud sill and that trap door saved this house. That opens when the tide gets too high, especially during a storm. What they realized is by letting the water in, kept the house in place. Rather than lifting up the house and the whole house would disappear. Freeport is about to give us a lesson in how we're adapting to storms in the 21st century. The village's downtown harbor front is busy. Nancy dips into a store to catch up with a friend while I cross the street to meet Mayor Robert Kennedy. Well, we go back and we look at uh, Superstorm Sandy. We're closed for a year or two. And all the, all the business, half the business is burnt down here. Uh, the remainder were flooded. We had eight foot of water where we're standing right now, salt water. So uh, there was structural damage and... and major, major rebuilding that occurred post-Superstorm Sandy. I saw how Sandy laid waste to Freeport through my reporting. Floods ripped oil tanks from homes and businesses left floating in the middle of Main Street. Downed electric poles and wires live with power sparked blazes in this drowning village. But there's no sign of that now. The mayor is beaming about the reconstruction of the village's nautical mile, packed with bars it's a popular spot for nightlife and a good time. It's called the fishing capital of the Northeast. We have plenty of fishing charter boats here. They're all along Nautical Mile, several fish stores here. We have boat rentals here, so you go out on your own charter boat fishing, jet ski rentals. The place is really built up, uh, built up over the past eight or nine years. So we still have our family-oriented businesses. We're going to have uh, a miniature golf course that's here now. We're going to be going amusement parks on most of the weekends to bring the families and children back. So some of the improvements that we've seen since Sandy have been a lot of raising of property, both residential and commercial, because if there's going to be eight feet of water up on this uh, wharf here, it's going to, uh, <laughs> that's going to take out most dining rooms, most first-level storefronts. If you've got a car parked in the garage, sayonara, right? Yes, absolutely. And some of the new regulations that came into effect post-Superstorm Sandy is if the building had more than, 51% damage, the uh, requirement was you must raise to get any funding for it. So most of the buildings you're going to see down here did receive funds, but they also raised above the required level to prevent flooding. So you see most of the buildings have been lifted up. It's hard. People have set, are set in their ways. It, it's expensive to go about these projects. You know, it's really up to the individual. Um, 
many places wanted to maintain the integrity of the past 20 years where one of the restaurants down here at every high tide everybody has to wear boots or sit up on the chair they just want to maintain that uh, same history and not raise the building um, but many of them as you can see decided it's financially beneficial to turn around and raise it and uh, have the uh, assistance of the federal government to assist in financing it. This loop we're doing around Freeport, the mayor shows examples of the investments they made to literally lift themselves out of the drink. Carpenters like Ben Jackson were kept busy. We bought this building after Sandy and basically chopped the roof off and built everything out of the flood zone. The front door to Ben's general contracting is up a 10-foot staircase. Where we were standing, our heads would be underwater. We had about six feet of water. You know, we're survivors down here. We don't have much of a choice. You know, you got you to gotta keep working and keep your business going. Ben is also the president of the Freeport Chamber of Commerce. He represents all the businesses here. My home is in what they call a V zone, which is a heavy wave action zone. So it's also built to take the impact of a wave hitting the house. Now, we did have a few houses where the foundations actually collapsed because of wave action. So they, it's, everything's re-engineered and, and a lot stronger and built better. Another reason why people raise their homes is to avoid paying massive premiums for flood insurance. That alone could put homes financially out of reach for many. A national flood insurance program that we all pay taxes for makes it easier for those who remain. The federal government also provided grants to rebuild in Freeport and the rest of Long Island after Sandy. Look, I've lived here my whole life. Uh, almost 60 years, you've had two major floods in the last 10 years, eight years even. So hopefully these are what they call 100-year storms, and we don't see them again for a good long time. But I think that some of the, some of the signs, some of the projections are showing that we're going to see these once-in-a-century storms more often. It's going to take a while to evolve. It's difficult to get everybody to raise their house and have their house protected from the storms, but I think it is evolving. Maybe not in a quick enough rate, but we'll have to see. We need to recognize the fact that water is definitely increasing. The oceans are increasing here. We're going to have problems in the future. We have another nor nor'easter, similar to Super Sandy. People are going to move out. They're not going to come back a second time. So we have to move forward. We have to protect these neighborhoods. We have to protect the, the, the waterfront community. A noisy street sweeper disbanded our tour for now. Ben has to go to a client meeting, and well, the mayor has a village to run. Sharing science matters more now than ever. The Alda Center for Communicating Science helps scientists and researchers share their work and its significance in powerful and engaging ways. In this way, we can all explore the wonders and joys of science together. Explore our professional development workshops and graduate programs to discover new ways to build trust and engagement in science. Learn more at aldacenter.org. I retrieve Nancy and we head down to our cars parked by the water. Along the way, I tell her about Ben and the mayor and the improvements we talked about. With architects and zoning codes and building permits, we have lost those traditional building practices that used to be the staple of all houses on Long Island in, in the 19th century and you know, even into the early 20th century. That's a lot of time, money, and effort that could literally be just washed away. There is no such thing as a waterfront house that is impervious to climate change. 
Next time on Higher Ground, wherever people live, they need utilities, running water, sewer service, and of course, electricity. We'll explore how climate change on Long Island has made providing even these basic services a challenge. This idea Nancy brings up about not being impervious to climate change sticks with me while the team and I drive over to meet up with an environmentalist. Coastal communities all over the place are building higher to get out of the way of rising sea level and climate change. That sounds like a novel plan, but if anything, the Bay Houses showed me that we've put many strategies in place before. So it seems almost cavalier to suggest our infrastructure is definitely ready for another hurricane. Climate change is really going to change the future of Long Island, and we have to keep that in mind. And and not just keep it in mind, but get ready. Environmentalist Allison Branco tells me about this massive federal plan to pay for the lifting of homes and replacing sand on beaches to protect entire communities from being washed away. It's known as FIMP. FIMP, it stands for Fire Island to Montauk Point. Um, and it's an Army Corps project that has now been funded by Congress just this past year, um, which means that the funding for the initial construction is all in place. Um, and you're right, this project has been going on many, many decades since the Eisenhower administration, actually. This project has been under discussion. Just, just, it, it, it was first planned during the Eisenhower administration, but it was just funded in 2021. Yes, that's right. This is, I don't know if it's the longest running Army Corps project, but it's got to be in the top 10 for sure. I'm in a tailspin. A plan to harden the whole south shore of Long Island, put together 70 years ago, has just finally been funded. Had that money been available before Sandy, Freeport and the rest of Long Island could have been better protected. My concern is that we're not viewing it as a short-term solution, that we're, people are hoping that this will be a long-term solution, that we will continue to nourish the beach for 30 or 50 years or whatever, um, and not ever invest in the really important planning to come up with some longer-term solution. If we can't get ahead of this, it means that we're going to have to go elsewhere, that coastal retreat. It's absolutely a hard sell. Um, and I think, you know, the important thing to remember is that it's not the climate scientists that are causing the problem. They're just sort of the messengers. And the message Allison is telling me is that America is spending tons of money on an old plan, a very old plan to address climate change. Instead, she says, we may simply need to embrace the reality that we can't afford to keep building on a vulnerable coastline. That's $7 billion that we can't spend on good planning for new shoreline management, that we can't spend on buying homes that are vulnerable, that we can't spend on helping people relocate to higher, safer ground. Um, and I think we really need to weigh the, the trade-offs of projects like this that, that really are only going to help us for the short term. Huh higher ground. What you want, who you be, what you need, why you talking to me? Don't be quiet, I'm a needle to the weave. Better talk or you'll fall through the seams. Spit it out, what's your play? Think you're slick with your bag or what it tricks? I'm not fooled by the shape of your lips, just a suit in the shape of a tick. You lost, have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind, and you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why there is.
Higher Ground is produced and mixed by Sabrina Garone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Kelly Hills Mucky and Sarah Ruberg did fact-checking and research. Dave Eisenstatter is our digital editor. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. Terry Sheridan is news director. Tom Kuzer is program director. Music for the show is composed by Samuel Davies and Eric Harper. This podcast was made possible by the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. For more, go to WSHU.org. The next episode is available wherever you get your podcasts. I find that we are all the same. We all just play a game and never show just who we are. Like actors, you're a star. You shine far brighter than the rest. Among us, you're the best. But when the show comes to an end, who will watch you pretend? You need a stage to light your life. You never show your strife. Don't you think it's a little strange? Your face just stays the same. I don't know if you've got a heart. You don't show who you are to me. You're just another name who hides behind his fame. Give it up. Your cover's blown like a needle to the hem. You've been sewn. You can fight. You can play. But you're hitched like a heart that is torn. You're a stitch. Scared little man, do you run from the sounds? They go creeping in the night. Do you cringe from the voice in your head? Are you afraid to be alone? Do you go where it tells you to go? Have you never wondered why there is nothing here at all? You're just afraid to be alone, and you run from the void in your heart. And you never wondered why there is nothing here at all. There's nothing here at all. There's nothing here at all.